And brothers and sisters, take your Bibles and turn them open to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Before I ask you to stand and for the reading of God's Word, let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Now, blessed Lord, once more we come and we bow before You. Lord, we are acknowledging our need. Lord, we need You. We need You to come and be with us. We need Your presence. We need need You to minister to us those graces that, Lord, we need built up in our lives. We need You to take this Word of truth and show us the way. Enlighten our minds. Direct our emotions, Lord. Make our paths straight. Help us, O Lord, be a people that's, that's not zealous for the wrong reasons, but zealous for the right reasons. Ground us upon truth. Lord, help us to understand and to know Thy way so that we're not subjected to the craftiness of the enemy. And we won't be led astray that, Lord, we would be able to buffet and push back false doctrine and teachers. But Lord, as You increase our knowledge, increase our humility. As You show us the way, Lord, give us a sensitivity and a sincerity, Lord, and a desire to walk in it. And more than anything, make the Lord Jesus sweet to us, precious to us, more valuable than gold and silver, more pleasant than the accolades of friends, and just more personal, Lord, that to have Him as our companion. And we ask all of this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, stand with me and, and we read these two verses. From Matthew chapter 13, it's the parable of the mustard seed, and hear now the word of the Lord. Another parable He put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, who doesn't desire significance in their lives? Which one of you here this morning doesn't desire to have a meaningful life? For your life to mean something. For the things that you hold nearest to you to be valuable. I I can't think of a normal person that doesn't desire meaning. That doesn't desire to have that, that 
investment, that interest, that value that comes with what we believe, what we hold to tenaciously, the things that we put our confidence in. And those are the things that matter most. The things you trust. The things that, that are the most personal to you are the things you believe. I want you to think about that. Just take a moment and let your mind absorb that statement. What's the most personal thing in your life but the things that you've put your trust in, the things that you valued, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a spouse, a, a husband, a wife, the value of children, a family, the value of brothers and sisters, parents, grandparents. The value of church fellowship, communion. And we could go on the value of, of, of even national interests could even be in there. Those things, the patriotism, right? Those things that we find that are personal to us. Well, they are the things that we put our trust and confidence in. To know those things are going to be there. A friend is going to be there when you need them. Right? That's valuable, isn't it? Now, I hope I've set the context for the parable. And I hope I've at least in some ways grabbed your interest. Because this is really kind of where the disciples are when Jesus gives this parable. Just let me sort of prick your memory just a little bit. Remember, what was it that started this series of parables in Matthew 13? It was conflict. It was opposition. Jesus has come under intense opposition by the Pharisees, and it looks that the slander did not have the effect that it should have had. And and all of the things that go in trying to minimize someone's influence in ministry. So the best thing that they could come up with at the time was to accuse him of being in league with Satan. And that's, what it, that's what's happened in a few chapters before this. They had accused Christ of being in league with Satan. That's the only way he can perform these miracles. This is, the, this is the power that Jesus uses to cast out demons. And of course, Jesus destroys the argument. He destroys the accusation. But it doesn't destroy the influence of that opposition because they went to his family and they said, look, you really need to go talk to your brother. You really need to go talk to your son. And his mom and his brothers go to see him. Now you have to put yourself in the shoes of the sandals of the disciples. They're watching all of this going, they're watching these going ons, you know, and they gotta see, wow, you know, this is what we, you know, this is intense. This is intense. I mean, well, I'm, they witness tremendous miracles by Jesus. He, he makes the lame walk. He gives sight to the blind. He, he casts out demons. He, he throws the demons into a herd of hogs. I mean, He does some incredible things. But nevertheless, I mean, we all, you know, the opposition comes. And when the way of life as we know it becomes, seems to turn against that which we are beginning to hold to, we go to question it. I don't think anybody here can ever say and ever question your faith. 
question your commitment to Christ. Is it too much? Is it not? Maybe if, maybe. You know, we start that series of questions. Maybe if I, and you just, you know, finish it out. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe this is just too much. And the Lord Jesus is teaching the disciples, and he, well, he's teaching the followers that he has, those who are sincere, those who really want to know, those who are earnest, those who have expressed their faith, put their trust in him. Remember, faith is the ground of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't come through politics. It doesn't come through denominations. It comes through that spiritual work of the Holy Spirit putting in us the gift of faith, giving us the desires to exercise that faith, repent of our sins. Repentance is a fruit. It's a fruit of that powerful work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's something that we're exercising, demonstrating that God is working in us and the kingdom of God belongs to them. It belongs to them. It's a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus is teaching His disciples what the true nature of the kingdom really is. It's fruitfulness. It's fruitfulness. It's not just based in ceremonies and outward pomp and, and, and pageantry of, of church life. It's, it's grounded in the heart. It's embedded when the Word of God comes in contact with our souls and we begin to bear the fruit of the Word in our lives. And Jesus says that's the nature of the kingdom of God. This is where it begins. It's invisible, yet visible. It becomes inward first and then outward in fruit. And Jesus goes on and teaches the disciples. He says, but nevertheless, the the kingdom of God is going to suffer opposition in this life. It's going to be intermixed. Christ and His called preachers are going to go preach the gospel and and many will be saved by the preaching of the gospel. They will repent of their sins. They will embrace Jesus Christ. They will become members of the church and Satan's going to come along and he's going to also sow his seed of corruption and he's going to intermix the people of God with the people of Satan to compromise their beliefs, to to dull their spiritual senses, to to just be that voice of discouragement when, when it's time to step up and out Satan's people are always there to say "Mm, let's step back and do nothing let's not be so zealous let's not be overly religious and now this parable see this parable addresses that 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 thought of Confidence. It, this parable is addressing that mindset that, you know, we do want meaning. You know, how do the disciples know that what they have set their hands to, what they have set their hearts to, it's going to end up well for them? I mean, how do they know? 
And you can see throughout the Gospels, right, they, they do have these interchanges with Jesus about the kingdom of God. And there's one moment when they come and, you know, and Jesus is preaching and some come up to Jesus and the disciples are there as well. And they're hearing all this. They're seeing this and hearing this interchange. And it's like, well, Lord, let me first go bury my father and, and then I'll come and follow after you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury the dead. You come, hear the God. You come and follow me. And it perplexes the disciples. And Jesus has to affirm them. He has to help them along because they're weak. They're very much like we are. We need confirmation, don't we? We need to come and, and, and glean and, and get that confirmation from the Word of God. And, and Jesus says, well, no, listen to me. There's no one that puts their hands to the pow. There's no, look, foxes have holes, dens, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But I'm going to tell you this, there's not one person that forsakes family and estates and material goods that don't receive a hundredfold more in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is affirming to them that what you have set yourself to is going to yield a reward far beyond your imagination. It's not in vain. See, that goes back to my original question, isn't it? It's not in vain. It's not for nothing. It, 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 it's not valueless. This isn't vanity. This is not just a, a momentary habit or, or trend, if you will. This is, this is meaningful. This is life-changing. This is something that we've invested in. This is something that we're sacrificing for. And I need to know, Lord, is this all for good? And he goes, yes. Yes. Now, how, how do we learn this? Well, the parable of the mustard seed helps us understand that. Look at the parable and let's look at how it bolsters confidence itself. First, the first, there are three truths that I want to bring to your attention from this little two-verse parable. And the first truth I want to bring to you is to have confidence in God's methods. To have confidence in God's methods. Look at the verse, look at the parable, verse 31. It says, in another parable, he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Now we have a mustard seed. Notice it's uh, it, the intention of it is uh, to point out it's, it's insignificant. It's small. That's the purpose of Jesus using this. This isn't something unique to Jesus. There was um, uh, the mustard seed had, was used in that day for so, what well, I guess call them Hebrewisms. That is, when Jesus said, look, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, go and jump in the sea. You can move mountains with just the small faith of a mustard seed. So it was something common. It was a saying common in that day. Well, Jesus is pointing out that for the, the, the disciples who are 
who are watching this opposition, listening to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, now listen, I want you to know the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed. It's small. It's insignificant. It's without impressiveness, isn't it? It's nothing impressive about it. That's the point that Jesus is making. And and what I want to what I'm going to glean out of those words, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus is going to do here is teach us to have confidence in the methods of God. God's ways are not our ways. It has pleased God to take the lowly and small things of this world and do great things with them. Now, if we're going to do anything, we're going to do it big. Right? That's the, that's, we're going to throw a party. It's going to be a big party. I mean, we're going to, you know, we want to, uh, you know, most of the things we do, right, we want to do in a, a very significant way, right? Bigger is better. Is that not one of the sayings of our time? Bigger is better. That's not how the Lord works. That's not how the Lord works, brothers and sisters. And I want you to understand something this morning. I want you to be able to put your confidence in the methods of God. You know, why? I mean, notice even creation itself. God didn't do anything elaborate. He just spoke it and it was there. You know, He didn't call a committee together. He didn't call a press conference together. He didn't create a bunch of reporters to report on what He was doing, right? So He could be in the headlines. I mean, He just spoke and it was there. And He sat back and had enjoyment in what He created in Himself. You know, it's good. The Bible says that when He created everything, He stepped back and He said, this is all very good. He took delight in Himself. In what he had done. He didn't need any other acknowledgement other than his own acknowledgement of it being good. But you say, well, okay, that's, that's sort of without pomp and, you know, pageantry and there was no one there to see it. And of course, he could have created a whole host of people to watch him do it, but he didn't. He just does it. But then he creates a man and gives him a wife and says, now you're going to have dominion over creation and you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply the earth. And you think, well, that's small, right? Why didn't he make a bunch of families? I mean, why didn't God just populate the earth all at once? He didn't want to. He starts with a family. And it it pleased God to populate the earth through this one family. And you say, well, they didn't turn out so well. They failed. They sinned. And in them, we sinned with them. And yes, it pleased God to allow them to fall and to, as their posterity, be corrupt morally. And then it pleased God to give them the promise of a Savior. And it pleased God to set before them worship and methods and modes of worship that they would come and sacrifice and display their trust and faith in God. And and you see that God is still working smallly, minutely through the seed of the righteous, the seed of, of Abel and Seth. We get to Noah. 
And what do we find? Do we find this grand church? I mean, really, let's think about this because here we have the creator of the world. I mean, we have um, the testimony that death and murder came through the one who rejected and hated God. And we have worship. We have prayer. We have these things that remind us of how good God is. And you would think the whole world would see it, right? The whole world would want God. The whole world would want salvation and deliverance, but it doesn't. We have only eight people in the church in Noah's day. Eight. A very small church. And we have God. Is God worried? No, God is still working. God saves that small church in an ark. That ark being a type of Christ. And He floods the earth and He cleanses the earth of its corruption and immorality to preserve this small little flock. And starts over. And then God decides to work through a family. Uh, he works. Hey, I want you to think about this. I mean, God's ways are not our ways. And, right, but now God decides to work through a 75-year-old man named Abram. And his wife, Sarai. And he tells them they're going to have a child. And, of course, they, they, they are like, Really? And he doesn't do it immediately. I mean, that would be the time to try. Let's do it while we're young. Let's make this happen. We're not getting any younger. And he waits 25 years. And then he says, Abraham, this time next year, you're going to have, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And she laughs. All while all of this is going on, God is doing what? God is exercising His will his methods, he is bringing about all that he has promised and purposed. And he's using the insignificant. Paul tells us in Romans 4 that Abraham's body was dead. Sarah's body was dead. She was barren. She couldn't have children. She had had no children. And yet God says, you're going to have a child. I mean, God didn't start with... You know, let's take a couple out of Hollywood. Let's get the most beautiful people we can find. You know, people that, that attract other people. And let's make them fruitful. Now, God doesn't do that. He starts with this old couple that has faith, that follows him. And he goes, I will bless you. And not only that, and I'm going to mention this later on, it's just brothers and sisters, it's just this thing, right? God's ways are not our ways. God's methods aren't our methods. He, he doesn't do things how we would do them. I mean, notice why, I mean, again, why didn't God create a bunch of families? Why didn't He just fill the earth? Why did God create just one religion, one faith, one way of salvation? Why doesn't God make all ways to Himself, right? If He wants to be worshipped, you know, you think about that. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? Well, I mean, if God wants to be worshipped, what's wrong with all religions? They all mean the same thing, right? You know, you've got the Native American. I mean, they, they believe in the one chief spirit, right? That's God. I mean, so what's the problem? I mean, Islam. I mean, uh, the, 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 the great spirit or the, the great chieftain or, or the great karma, the great force. It's all God, right? So why don't uh, why isn't all of it accepted? I mean, if God is really concerned about people worshiping Him, why don't all these avenues, all of these religions lead to Him? And God says, no, one. 
Well, it seems like if it was going to cover the earth, it'd be faster and better if they were more. Right? And God said, no one. One sufficient. Just one. One faith. One Savior. Will accomplish it all. You think about the Hebrew family after Abraham. Nothing impressive about them. In fact, God says, listen, as you go into the promised land in chapter 10, Deuteronomy says, now don't think I did this because you're worthy of it. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pride buster, isn't it? I didn't do this for you. I did it for my name's sake. Because I made a promise to fill the earth with salvation. I made a promise to your father Abraham that I would bless every family of the earth through his seed. And you're part of this. And then he sends this, this, these Hebrew slaves <laughs> into the world. Gives them a country. Gives them a ceremonial cultus, a worship. He said, this is how you're going to worship me. Here's your laws. Here's how you're going to walk with me. Here's how I'm, and here's how I'm going to bless you. And if you do these things, you're going to be, be, you're going to be blessed to the, to the heavens. And the nations are going to look at you and they're going to go, what nation? What? This is a great nation. But if you go and read Deuteronomy, what is it that made the Hebrew nation great? God's presence with them. And God said, wait a minute. It's not you. Remember that. It's not you. It's, it's me. It's my presence. And we see the Hebrew, these Hebrew slaves, his family become this mighty nation and they have a king named David and he, he conquers all the surrounding kingdoms around him. I mean, he's a great warrior king, right? I mean, what's my point, brothers and sisters? I mean, we skip there and go right to Jesus. We have the promised Messiah impregnated in this teenage girl named Mary of, of though of the line of David of a very poor family. They're so poor that she and her husband have no money to stay in a decent place for the night as they go to take the census, as they go to, to strike their name and to state where they're from and all of these things. They have no money to stay there that they must go to this stable and that's where she gives birth to the promised Messiah. I mean, how obscure and insignificant can you get? God's ways are not our ways. And God loves to take the small and insignificant things of this world and make them great and grand for His glory. That's the point Jesus is making here. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. He says, listen, this kingdom, this kingdom that I'm teaching you, this kingdom that has come about with the preaching of this gospel, think about it. This kingdom comes and this is supposed to be a powerful kingdom and it's, it's through the preaching of the gospel? The preaching of calling men sinners, they don't like to be called sinners. Let's start off positive in this message. No, we start off by calling men to repent. 
We start off by calling men and women to repent of their sins because it's on, it's on the, the basis and the presupposition that you know you're a sinner. You know it. You know it. You know it in your heart of hearts. You know you're a sinner. And you're, at, you're, at, you're wrong. And Jesus says, go, you preach repentance. And faith in Christ. Paul says that God is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise. I, I, you know, people, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? We have this, the preaching of this word. We have this book. We have these words. And, and God has ordained the, the, the exposition, the explaining, the preaching of it to soften hearts to build up lives to shape marriages to conform families to the word and will of God and to lead and guide the church throughout all the nations of the earth I mean just preaching of this book brothers and sisters the preaching the simple 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 plain preaching of this word has brought down whole nations and brought them into conformity to Christ that's what the Reformation was all about. Nations bowing a knee to the King of Kings preached out of this book. I want you to understand this book under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit is the greatest weapon in this world of changing men's hearts and minds. It can take the worst of men and make them the sweetest of people. It can take the worst of women and make them the kindest of souls. This book can do that. The power of the Spirit. It can take children at odds with their parents and reconcile them. It can take husbands and wives and bring them together. Yeah, Paul said it's... The world looks at the church and, you know, we had a visitor one time that said, I can't believe y'all sit here while he preaches like this to you. He was just dumbfounded that anybody would sit up under the preaching of the Word. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. And here's what... The Lord Jesus, I think, is pointing to here. He's saying, listen, these small and insignificant things, what seems small and insignificant to men is not to God. It's not to God. Oh, let me mention a, a, just a little bit before I move on to my second point about the seed here in Matthew 13 because I, I think it's significant to point out that if you look in the text itself, notice it says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's singular. And I think there is a reference here to be made to Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and He starts preaching. Does He go to the seminaries? Does He go to the Pharisees? And He says, give me your brightest and best to follow Me. Give Me your scholars. Give Me the... Give me the ones who, who are astounding the wise, give me the best of the best so that they may follow me and that I may with them change the whole world. Does he do that? 
No, he, he goes out to this wild man in the wilderness named John. Now, he is a character in and of himself, right? Here's a man clothed in this, this big belt and wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and honey as his meal, preaching out there in the wilderness and people are flocking. I mean, that's not something that people, even people probably going out there like the Pharisees, right, for novelty reasons. Let's go, let's go watch this guy. And then when John sees him, he says, hey, why are you here? You brood of vipers. Don't you know that the axe of God is at the root? To cut you down and to cast you in the fire for you don't repent of your sins. God was pleased to use this wild man, John the Baptist, to be the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where does Christ go to receive the baptism of His ministry? He goes out to this wild man named John and he's baptized and the heavens open up and God the Father speaks and the Holy Spirit lights upon Christ to empower Him for this ministry. And He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Not like the world. The world's going, that's not good enough. Isn't this the one in Isaiah 53 that says, hey, he had no comely appearance. Nothing about Jesus caused men to go. He's significant. Nothing. There was nothing about Christ that drew men to him other than the words he spoke out of his mouth. The things he said caused hearts to melt and to want more. And then he says, listen, Peter, John, you smell like fish. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Doesn't look like it's starting very well, does it? It just doesn't look like that's the best method. And, and you know, we could do better. But this is yet the plan of God. And Christ goes and he preaches and he scares the religious, you know, the religious society. And, and because what they're waiting, they're waiting for a king to show up. They're waiting for this, the, the, the heavens to open up and, and Jesus is crowned and his king and come and receive his own. But remember how he rides into Jerusalem right before his crucifixion on a small little burrow. And they throw down their palm branches. And claim Hosanna to the highest. The king has arrived. You remember what they plastered on his cross? King of the Jews. That's what he said. Brothers, I point out that God's ways are not our ways. God wants to demonstrate His power and glory by taking those things that He has ordained to change the world and use them mightily. Look where that band of twelve, look, what is, look where we are today. Look where we are today. Where did it start? You think about Jesus. I'm going to spend a little more time just to think about Jesus, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to look at what the... 
Matthew talks about the garden. Mark and Luke talk about this, or the field. Matthew talks about the field. Look, he sowed, he took and sowed in his field. And Matthew or Mark and Luke talk about the garden. Where do we see Christ broken before his crucifixion? In the garden of Gethsemane. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the events that happen. The seed must go into the ground. And what must that seed do? If you plant, um, uh, if, if, for that mustard seed to become a tree, what has to happen to it? It has to break open and has to die. The seed has to cease being a seed and then it grows and it becomes the plant, the tree that it, it produces, right? The tree is not a seed, is it? But the seed is not a tree. Right? That seed must be broken. There's something that has to happen to it. Jesus is gone and He goes before His Father and He's broken for the sins of the world. And out of that brokenness and out of His death and out of His cry out to God, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Out of that wrath comes life. Out of the torrent of God's wrath on His Son, life in Christ is produced. And He says, I am the life and I am the way. I'm the truth. And He possesses that life and He gives it to whom He pleases. And He gives it to all who will trust in Him and repent of their sins and cling to Him. Those who have confidence in Him without wavering, right? Without wavering. If you find yourself, beloved, being shaken in your confidence and despising these methods of God, what, do you, what must you say? Lord, help me in my faith. Lord, hang on to me. Build up my confidence. Do not let me go. Secondly, God's power. I've already mentioned it. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. And when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Let me stop there. What do we see? God's power. It is the power of God that takes the methods of God and makes them effectual. How many times do we want God to bless our plans? Are we not too smart for our own good? How many times do we go and we go, you know, we know how to do things. We know how, how would we do it if we were to do it? You know, we've been talking about that. How would we build the church? We, we wouldn't be preaching. We could, have, we could have light shows. We could have dramas. You know, we could have artistic dancing. But God doesn't bless those things. And those things may be fine in a whole complete other setting. But it's the preaching of the gospel. It's the exposition of His Word. It's the proclamation. It's the heralding of Christ and repentance and faith. And, 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 and this, is what, this is what the Lord blesses. This is where His power is revealed. Look at Acts chapter 6. Why does God bless the faithful preaching of the gospel? Acts chapter 6, verse 7. 
It says, and then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What do we see here? What's the Lord pleased to put His power on? What's the Lord pleased to, to bless? It's not man's agenda. It's God's methods. That's what he said. Look, the seed is cast to the ground. This is God's plan. God's going to bring His plan to fruition. God's going to make sure that He's glorified. And that's why we should want to be on His plan. Not to despise small beginnings like the prophet in the Old Testament said, but to see that this is God's plan. And if it's God's plan, then it's the plan that I must choose as well. God brings the increase, brothers and sisters, through the spreading of the Word of God. Spreading of truth. Scripture. You can talk about it. You can preach it. You can teach it. Look at Acts 19. Acts 19. Verse 20. Back up to verse 19. And also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What was it that took down the stronghold of Satan in Ephesus? You know, Satan had a stronghold there through the magic arts, witchcraft. You know what took it down? Preaching of the gospel. Calling men and women to repent. Offering forgiveness. Telling men and women they could be made right with the Father through His Son, Jesus. And He would forgive you of your witchcraft. He'll forgive you of your witchcraft. He'll forgive you of your magical arts. Just come to Christ. He'll make you whole. He'll make you clean. And we see the power of God in the preaching of that gospel so Powerfully, that they take these books and they go out and they burn them up. Not counting the cost. Not caring how expensive those books were. Those books were an abomination in their Savior's sight. So they burned them. This is an offense to God. Get it out of my house. Burn them up. And it doesn't matter what it cost me. I throw it all to the wind for God's sake. Because I've gained, I've gained the greatest treasure and value that anyone can ever have. The salvation of my soul. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, what we don't read in the Scriptures is we don't read that God is using, that the ordinary means and methods that God is using powerfully in the lives of, the, of His people in the kingdom of God is what? The, the explanation, the preaching, and the teaching of the Word of God. What, should, what ministry should the Word and fellowship, what ministry should the fellowship of the church surround around? 
The Word of God. What's our common bond? The Scriptures. What should we all be reading and growing in? The Scriptures. You see? Because this is the power of God unto salvation. The Word of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 12. Let me read verse 11. It says, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Now if you go to chapter 1, guess where that... Guess where this abounding, guess where this increase of love and abounding comes from? The Word of God. The Word of God. You want to increase in your love for somebody, study the Word of God. You want to increase, in, you want to increase your love for the things that you ought to love, study the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, the Scriptures, Paul clearly talks about you know, Paulus, he watered, um, he preached, he sowed, uh, I watered. But who gave the increase? Who gives the growth? 1 Corinthians 3.5, God gives the growth. Look at Matthew 28. We'll move to our third point. Matthew 28. Verse 16, uh, verse 18, he says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, those are his disciples, and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and therefore, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says two things. Number one, He says, go teach them what I taught you. Go teach the Word. Who do you teach? Who are you supposed to teach? All the nations. All the nations. And I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be the power. I'm going to be the power. I'm going to bless my methods. I'm going to bless my... I'm going to take these small and insignificant things and I'm going to bless them and make them mighty and powerful in God's sight. And even in the sight of men. Because I can tell you right now, brothers and sisters, you're sitting here this morning, I'm going to ask you, you have to ask yourself, what's the... What's the nearest and dearest thought and truth you treasure in your heart and mind? If it's not the gospel, if it's not your relationship with Jesus, you have an idol. You have fallen into idolatry. And you need to, you need to fix that. You need to contend with that. You need to understand, brothers and sisters, that our confidence... Placed in the methods of God is not misplaced confidence. Our confidence in the power of God and the things that God has ordained to be so, brothers and sisters, is not a misplaced confidence. Don't despise small things. Don't despise these things that we call ordinary. Why? Because people go, oh, they preach there. Oh, they teach the Word. I like trips. I want to go on some trips. I want to, you know, I want to do something fun. 
And I, brothers and sisters, what I, I think what Jesus is even doing in these, these parables is saying, listen, when your eyes have been opened and your heart's been filleted open before God, these things are precious to you. Jesus is trying to bring confidence to his disciples. And so we see God's methods. We see God's power because he causes that little seed to what? Grow into a tree. God brings the growth to that. That insignificant, what, that Savior that looks insignificant. He stands before Pilate. Nobody wants him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Put him to death. We don't want him. He's raised from the dead. He spends time talking to his disciples and right before he leaves in the book of Acts, the Bible tells us that he spent time talking to them about the kingdom of God and he commissioned them, go out and do these things that I've called you to do and I'll be with you. I'm going to give it power by my presence. The third thing is God's promise. We need to understand that it's not just the methods of God, it's not just the power of God, but brothers and sisters, every bit of this is connected to God's promise. God has promised these things to be so. He promised them all the way back, even in the garden itself. I mean, after the fall, when He was dealing tenderly with Adam and Eve, and and they blamed one another and blamed Satan for their fall, He says, listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to raise up enmity between your seed and her seed. And and he's He's going to bruise His heel, but that coming Savior is going to crush Satan's head. It's a promise. You know, one thing that Adam and Eve didn't trust was the Word of God. His Word. They didn't trust His Word. They they lost confidence in God's Word because Satan tricked them. How How are we tricked when we lose confidence? When our confidence becomes shaky well, this is not worth doing. This isn't valuable. I mean, why do, why do I go to a Bible study? I mean, it's just a Bible study. Well, think about the one thing that you hear God is using in your life to sanctify you and grow you up. And you think it's insignificant, but God goes, no, it's powerful. It's powerful. God's using this. Small things incrementally and holy in your life to bring you and keep you and to bless you and all these things. Things that we look at are insignificant. God says, oh no, these are powerful things. All because of God's promise. Let me show you this promise, if you will, because notice the text in Matthew talks about the birds of the air coming and finding rest on the branches and in the shade of the mustard tree. Interestingly enough, we have this promise given to Christ. Look at Psalm chapter 2. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. And here's the, here's the, the ground of this truth, brothers and sisters. That is, to the degree, to the degree that Christ was humiliated, His birth, his walk of obscurity, his, his mocking, his scourging, the, the blasphemy he received, I mean, the spitting, the pulling out of his hair, the crown of thorns, the, the whole realm of humiliation that Christ experienced, the Father says that he would exalt him. As low as he was, 
in this life, the Father says, I'm going to exalt him to the highest of highs. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Notice, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces, cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in His wrath, distress them in His deep pleasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. I will decree, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. I'm just going to stop there. What was the fruit of Christ's sacrifice? That the Father would not just give him a band of fishermen and that be it. Or even some Hebrew believers, and that would be it. Or even some few Gentile believers. No, the, the exaltation, the reward that the Father gives to Jesus for His humiliation is that all the nations of the earth will be yours. And you will rule over them because you are a worthy son and king. Turn with me to Psalm 22. You've got to see the confidence building that this would take place with the disciples. I mean, they look outnumbered. They are outnumbered. They look weak and pathetic compared to the scholarship and the, the scholars of the Pharisees of the day. And yet, here the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching them that they should have confidence in the methods and the power and the promise of God. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdoms of the is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. Now notice, listen to me, that comes after the messianic experience of Christ's crucifixion. If you read the very first of Psalm 22, it's a description of Christ's crucifixion. When does this exaltation take place? Christ's resurrection. What does He tell us in Matthew 28? We look, all authority in heaven and earth have, belonged, have been given to me by my Father. I send you out to what belongs to me. Preach to the nations. Teach them what I've taught you. Go baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because they're mine. I love what one uh, 18th, uh, 19th century scholar said when he was writing about the expansion of the gospel and the boundary markers and nations. He said, no missionary needs to ask any president, any king, any senator, any congressperson permission to go into that dominion and preach Jesus Christ. And what's the biblical basis for that? Who does he belong to? Who do the nations of the earth belong to? Who does the king serve? But the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He doesn't need permission from the government to preach the gospel because Jesus has already given permission to go preach the gospel to all the nations. Now that doesn't mean he can't be persecuted and suffer for it. But if he is, he suffers wrongly and unjustly because he's already received marching orders to go and preach the gospel from the one 
who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Psalm 72 verse 8 says that Christ's dominion is from sea to sea. Let's close with a couple of comments of application. Brothers and sisters, how do we despise small things? Well, we despise small things when we don't support them. We don't, we don't view them as valuable as God values them. You know, I'm, how often as a parent, including myself, not valued family prayer. It's so easy to watch a movie. It's so easy to do something else than to sit down and take five, ten minutes and say, let's pray together. God uses it. He uses it to focus the family. He uses it to tenderize the family. He uses it to just get our mind and our heart right. Don't despise small things. If you do, it'll be to your own detriment. It'll hurt you. Don't despise those things that God has ordained to change your life and to help you. Because if you do, it'll hurt you. It's not going to help you. Secondly, It's often the hardest to hold to these promises. And these promises act like anchors. God's methods are true. God's power is sufficient. And God's promises are anchors. Anchors are needed when times are hard, turbulent. When you need firmness, you need an anchor. That's God's promises. You watch TV, you watch the news, you listen to most people, and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But I can tell you there are statistics and stats out there, brothers and sisters, where the church is mightily growing in Korea. The church of Jesus Christ is thriving in China. The church of Jesus Christ is underground and growing in these Muslim countries. The church is growing in these European nations. It's small. But we shall not despise small beginnings. And the church in America seems to have lost her way and is rudderless, trying to find some identity in anything other than the methods in, of God and its power. We want other things. We want to be, we want to be, we want the, the name recognition. We want all the technology. You know, we, we, it's like we need all this other stuff and we don't need that. We need the presence of God. We need Him to bless His Word and we need to come with humble hearts and say, Lord, change me. Start my family. Change me. Change this church by changing me first. Now I'll ask you this as we close. Will you give a new pledge this morning to the confidence you have in the kingdom of God? Will you pledge now new confidence in God's methods, in God's power, and God's promises? 
Let's pray.